turn to John 11, if you would. We are going to take a look at a few days in the life of Jesus and the impact that that had on all those around him. So John 11, and let's look at verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have afforded us the opportunity this day to read, study, and proclaim your word. May you grant us, by the power of your spirit, eyes to see you and ears to hear your voice, the same listening ears that you gave to Lazarus. And we pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, prior to finding out that Lazarus was sick, if you look back in John chapter 10, starting in verse 22 to 24, Jesus had been in Jerusalem where the Jews asked him point blank if he was the Christ. And in verses 25 to 28, Jesus answers them plainly that he and the Father are one. And the response he gets from them is, number one, unbelief, and two, anger to the point of picking up stones to kill him on the spot. Then we see in verse 39 that their attempts to seize him and kill him fail, and we see Jesus in the next verses leaving Judea and its dangers behind to minister across the Jordan for a period of time. And while he is there, John tells us that a man named Lazarus was sick. Verse 2, this, man, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary, Mary here is further identified as the one who anointed Jesus. Well, this anointing doesn't take place until chapter 12, but it's listed here in the past tense. And since the Gospel of John obviously was written some years after all these events transpired, he wants to make sure that you know and you know her identity and don't confuse her with someone else of the same name. So they send word to him and say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, obviously, Jesus cared for, he cared for many people. He loved many people. But this indicates that he had a special affection for Lazarus. And if you notice, the message he received didn't actually ask him for help. But I think because of the close personal relationship they have with him, the implication is pretty clear that these sisters have a confident expectation that Jesus would act on behalf of their brother. They also don't ask him to come. 
but they seem to be leaving it to Jesus to decide how to approach the situation. And I think the reason for that is actually very simple. Everybody knows that Jerusalem and its surrounding environs right now are a very dangerous place for Jesus to be. And I can just see Martha and Mary looking at each other and saying, he'll find a way. Jesus loves him. I know it's dangerous, but I'm sure he will find a way. We see in verse 4 that Jesus gets the message. He hears it. The messenger comes, and Jesus then says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. We don't know who he's speaking to, whether he's speaking to the messenger or to the disciples or both, but whichever it is, Jesus makes clear that the ultimate issue of this sickness is not the life or death of a man, but it is the further revelation and manifestation of the glory of God amongst men. So what does Jesus have in mind when he speaks of the glory of God? He has in mind the magnificence of God, the transcendence of God, the beauty of God, the power of God, the character of God, the compassion and love of God, and the sovereign control of God over all of life's activities. The attributes of God will all be on display for all of mankind to see in and through this sickness, is what he's telling them. And that's not all. If that wasn't enough, as men and women stand in awe of that glory that they will see, it will be expanded and enlarged to encompass the very person of Jesus himself. He will also be seen as sharing in the glory of God. The glory attributed to God will be the same glory that will be attributed to the Son. Now, as an aside, I want to encourage you to think about how this can affect how how we pray for those that are in need. Often when we hear that someone is sick or they're laid off or they have some difficulty that's come their way, generally our default prayer is to ask God to make their problem go away and make it go away ASAP. And we tend to see that as the best thing that we can pray for. Now that's perfectly fine. But I would encourage you to add to your prayers for that person that God would make himself known in and through the difficulty that they are facing in their life at the moment. That the Father and the Son would be seen as glorious as they deal with whatever difficulty is before them. 
And I think this is partly what it means to pray in Jesus' name, to pray in accordance with his divine purpose and his desire for his people. And we never know what God has in store for us as to the temporal, as, as to temporal things. But we always know that praying for God to be glorified in and through our lives, especially in the hard times, is a prayer that he will hear and that he will answer and he will answer decisively. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Jesus' love for this trio is very, very apparent. Yet he waits to respond to their request. So we can be confident that the delay here is not due to indifference on his part. So why wait two more days? I think, I, I think there are two other times recorded in the New Testament where Jesus is asked to do something, yet he delays. One is in John 2 where he recounts when Jesus' mother informs him that there's no more wine at the wedding. And he responds with, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And another is in John 7, when his brothers tell him that anyone who wants to be a celebrity, they need to get out in the public. So go up to the feast so you can get your notoriety. And his response again was, the right time for me has not yet come. So why the delay? I think we need to see here, as in the other incidents, that Jesus did not act in accordance with the demands and whims of men. Even when those whims or demands were from his own family. And to put it bluntly, Jesus is not some divine errand boy at their disposal. He was not to be coerced. And he was not to be dictated to, even by his dearest friends. Jesus' actions were directed solely by his determination to accomplish the will of God. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. It says, Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. If you look over in John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says this, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This will of Jesus and the command of God for Jesus, extend all the way to what Jesus said and how he was to say it. So the delay here was not an oversight on his part, but it was a divine directive that Jesus followed. 
Then at the end of those two days, in verse 7, he says, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you're going back there? His statement of going back to Judea shocks his disciples. This is an option that they would not consider under any circumstance. In their minds, this is the place you avoid at all costs. Now notice what Jesus says to them. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. He explains obedience to God by using the illustration of day, daytime and nighttime. Twelve hours here stands for the whole of the daylight hours. So he illustrates it in this way. When the sun is shining... You can see clearly to avoid any possible issues that may impede your movement. It's at night when there is no light shining that you stub your toe on the furniture, you step on a Lego, or you bash your shin into the table. And and this is true spiritually as well. The daytime represents walking in the light of God's truth. When God's truth is lighting your path, you see clearly as to what to do that will result in obedience to God and bring about and accomplish the purposes of God. But the opposite is also true. The night represents walking in the darkness of sin and being devoid of God's truth. Men stumble morally when they walk in the darkness of sin, disobedience results, and as Jesus literally says here, it's because the light is not in him. That's why he stumbles. So he's stating to his disciples that he's been given work to do by the Father. And he must do it while he has opportunity, regardless of the dangers at hand. And even though it may be dangerous to return, if he does not go to Judea, he will be putting his own personal safety above accomplishing the work God has him to, for him to do. And for him to do that would be for him to sin against God. Jesus has absolute confidence in his Father that he will see to it that no villain or no group of villains will impede him or stop him from completing the work that God has called him to do. Verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And this is clear, makes clear the work that he has to do and the purpose in going back to Judea. I, I have work to do there. That's why we're going back. What work is that? I, 
have to go wake up Lazarus. Well, his disciples reply in verse 12, well, Lord, he's sleeping. He'll get better if he's sleeping. (laughs) Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. We have to remember that John is writing after the fact and that this statement here is a parenthetical statement. And the point he's making is that they all thought a bit of rest would do Lazarus some good. Not one of them realized the gravity of the situation. So Jesus tells them plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. He rejoices over the fact that this event is going to result in the theological box of his disciples being expanded and deepened. That they will know and believe to a much greater extent because of what is transpiring right now. Verse 16, Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let's also go that we can die with him. Thomas apparently didn't pay any attention to, the, to anything after verse 7 uh, because he's fixated on the certainty of disaster ahead. He believes that if Jesus goes back, if he goes back to Judea, he believes that Jesus is toast. He sees no way out for Jesus. He sees the opposition as too intense and too overwhelming for Jesus, even though there are going to be 13 of them. The odds are clearly against them if they accompany him back into that hornet's nest. If I can use my sanctified imagination for a minute, can you, I, I can just see Jesus looking over at Thomas, going, and shaking his head, (laughs) right? Well, they do head back. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Why the emphasis on four days? Interestingly enough, there was a Jewish belief prevalent at the time that when anyone died, the soul of the dead person lingered in the vicinity of the body for three days. But four days of death meant that the person was dead and was going to stay dead. Every last hope had now gone as decay began to set in. He says that Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, the reference to the Jews here, coming to see Martha and Mary, should not be glossed over. Don't miss this. This term doesn't normally refer to just Jewish people. That wouldn't make any sense. Oh, Jewish people came to Mary and Martha. Well, of course they did. <laughs> they, live in, they live just outside Jerusalem, right? They're surrounded by Jewish people. 
But this term normally refers to the Jewish leaders that are, in, that are antagonistic to Jesus. I call them the religious bosses because that's what they are. The fact that some of them have come to comfort both of these women would indicate that this family was very prominent in the community. And more than likely, they were quite well-to-do as well. And just remember, it isn't long after this that Mary takes an alabaster jar of perfume that was worth almost a year's wages, and she pours it out. The average poor person is not going to be able to do that. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Someone runs with the news that Jesus is approaching. And when Martha hears that, she makes a beeline for Jesus. But again, I want you to notice something very significant here. We are told that Mary stays behind. We aren't told why. But I believe that the reason is a sobering one for her to stay behind. I think it says a lot about her and her feelings about Jesus at the moment. Her staying behind speaks volumes about how she feels about Jesus right now. Look at verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Two things about her statement. First, this is just my personal opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that this line, this statement, if you had been there, been here, my brother would not have died, has been stated and restated dozens and dozens and dozens of times between Mary and Martha over the last four days. And I think they've been using it to console themselves in some way. You can just see, you can just see Martha. You know, Mary, if Jesus had been here, he would have healed him. And then Mary's like, I know. Uh, but things just progressed too fast. And I don't know why he didn't come. But if he had, he would have healed him. I can just see that. But second, Martha makes a huge assumption here. In her mind, it is impossible to think that if Jesus had been present, he would not have healed Lazarus. I think in her mind, she was telling herself, he's healed total strangers. He's healed sinners. He's even healed Gentiles. And here Lazarus is his friend. He certainly would have healed him. If you had been here, I think implied in her statement is not only what Jesus could have done, but also an assumption of what he would have done had he come. But Martha is wrong for this simple reason that she is presuming upon God. I don't want to be harsh or overbearing, 
But God doesn't answer to her. And God doesn't answer to us either. Both Martha and Mary had it backwards. They presumed that what they wanted was what God wanted. They presumed that the result they expected was what Jesus would accomplish. The problem they faced was that they had no idea what God had in mind. They were looking to a sick brother. Jesus was looking to the glory of God. They saw Lazarus' restoration as the highest priority. Jesus saw the manifestation of God's power and his transcendence as the highest priority. I have a feeling that Martha forgot the truth of Isaiah 43, 21, where God describes the Jews as, quote, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise, end quote. Paul would later state in Romans 11 that for from him and through him and to him are all things. And that includes your life and mine in their totality. So does this mean that our tangible needs carry no weight before God? Well, obviously not. But they will be kept in their proper place and given their proper priority in the light of God's glory and his eternal purposes. Verse 22, Martha continues with her statement to Jesus, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is an expression of faith on her part to some degree. How much or to what extent it reaches is actually somewhat hard to determine. I tend to think, again, this is just my personal opinion, but I, I think that Jesus' message of verse 4 was relayed to them by the messenger. And she's holding on to what he said, that somehow this tragedy would not end in death, but was for God's glory, and in her mind, whatever that means. Well, be that as it may, the question we have to ask is, does her statement include a belief that Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead right now? And I think the answer to that question is no. We'll see that in just a moment. Jesus responds to her and he says, your brother will rise again. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What Jesus says and what she hears are not the same thing. She hears the words, but she doesn't grasp the meaning. She hears words that point her to an event in the future. And Jesus is pointing her to the reality of who he is. <clears throat> Martha thinks that the resurrection Jesus is speaking of is limited to a physical body regaining life at some point in the future. And what Jesus has in mind is much more than that. He responds to her 
when she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Resurrection is not out there somewhere off in the distance. Resurrection is standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection and the life. Death and loss of life can never overpower me. Not in this life or the next. I have power over them both. And I have power. I have the power to grant you the type of spiritual life that cannot be destroyed by physical death. It is so dynamic. It is so otherworldly that whoever lives in me and believes in me, that one will never die. Do you believe that? Well, let me ask you, is that the Jesus you believe in? Well, her answer is, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She agrees with what Jesus said to the extent that she knows now. This is why I said her theological box and their theological boxes are going to get expanded exceedingly in just a few minutes. But to the best of her ability now, she goes, yeah, I I believe you. She has a firm belief that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God manifest in the flesh, and he is the long-awaited deliverer who was promised. And very often, Martha is remembered for her crabbing at Mary because she won't, get, she won't help her get supper ready in Luke 10, right? That's what everybody remembers Martha for. Well, I think it might be, it might be better to remember her for this statement of faith in her hour of loss and bereavement. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. Get this, he is asking for you. He's asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up and went to him. Why did she stay behind? I wonder if it isn't something like, well, he didn't want to come, so I'm not going to go. He's asking for you. She gets up. She quickly goes to him. Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Interestingly enough, she's not the only one who goes, who leaves. She's followed by the mourners which include this group 
Again, notice it says the Jews. This group of Jewish religious leaders, and they suppose that Mary is going to go weep at the tomb. And the term that's used here for weeping at the tomb is not some silent weeping. It's that loud wailing that was often found in situations like this. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She falls at his feet in sorrow and deep disappointment and repeats the same mantra as Martha just a few moments before. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What does it mean, excuse me, that he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit? I think we should see Jesus being disturbed by the attitudes of Martha and Mary and these religious leaders who have so completely misunderstood not only the nature of death, but death in the light of the nature of his person. You have to remember that Jesus has been ministering among them for three years. All that he has said, all that he has done, all that he's taught, the miracles he's performed right in front of their eyes, And what does Jesus see in front of his eyes? He sees that very little progress has been made in their understanding of him and his purpose. That the cumulative effect of his teaching and preaching has made very little impact in the way they live their lives. And it troubles him greatly. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the word here for weeping is a quiet weeping, a shedding of tears. And then in verse 36, as Jesus weeps, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Remember, these are the Jewish bosses. These are the antagonistic religious leaders. They see Jesus' tears as sorrow over death and the loss of a friend. This is clearly projection on their part placing on Jesus their own thoughts, their own feelings, and their own beliefs. They also question Jesus' ability to help his friend. What happened? Right? Look at what he says in verse 37. That I thing he did a couple chapters ago, now that was pretty cool. That was amazing. 
Nobody does that. So, does this mean his strength is waning? Does that mean his abilities are diminishing? Because he couldn't help his friend? Why couldn't he do anything to help him? Do you know what their problem is? They are assuming that Jesus is like them. And that is always a monumental mistake. They interpret his tears as flowing from weakness and inability. Why? Because they are weak. And they are powerless in the face of death and sickness. Brothers and sisters, never assume that Jesus is as weak as you or as powerless as you in a certain circumstance or situation that you may face. Jesus is not the soggy noodle of the universe. as some like to try to portray him. You tell, tell the soldiers that were guarding the tomb on Sunday morning that Jesus is a wimp. Tell Thomas in the upper room after his resurrection how wimpy Jesus is. Tell Paul on the road to Damascus how wimpy Jesus is. I think it's time. For us to believe that Jesus is the mighty God and great are his exploits. How about we read on just a little bit in the narrative and see how weak Jesus really is? Verse 38 Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. He is once again deeply disturbed by the unbelief he has just heard from the so-called spiritual leaders of the nation. And on his arrival at the tomb, he says to Martha, take away the stone. Immediately, Martha balks. Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor. He's been there for four days. Her balking at this, I think what she's really saying is, you can't do that. You can't go in there. And we sure don't want you to to let out here what's going on in there. Why do you think we put it behind a stone? (laughs) We don't want that coming out here. Now, just to give you an idea what this would be like, we read it in the Bible and, and we tend to miss the significance of what's going on here. 
This would be like you going to the grave of a dear friend who just passed away in the last week. And you go there with four or five of your friends and that knew him as well. But you go there carrying a shovel. Those who came with you are going to question your sanity for trying to open that grave. Well, what's the point? What, what's the purpose of that? They would see no other purpose in your actions other than you wanting to gaze on death. I think that's how they view Jesus' request here. It is the demand of a powerless man not able to do anything but gaze on death in all of its horror. You can't take away that stone. Then Jesus says to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Didn't I tell you that? Martha has absolutely no inkling of what is coming. That's why I say back in verse 22, when she says, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. This is not what, <laughs> what she thought he would ask <laughs> by any means. Even if she had remembered that Jesus raised others from the dead, those others were people who had just died. On the one, in the one case, he had literally only been dead a few minutes. At the most, a few hours. Like the widow of Nain and her son, he'd been dead a few hours. What about Jairus' daughter? She'd literally been dead a few minutes. Not four days. She likely sees this as a desecration of her brother's person. Not just his grave, of his person. But Jesus firmly rejects Martha's protest here. Christ challenges her faith in him and sets before her the expectation of seeing with her own eyes the glory of God. So what does believing look like on Martha's part right now? What does believing look like? It is submitting to the command of Jesus at that moment Though it not only doesn't make any sense to her, it cuts across all her sensibilities as it relates to life. Because when she says, okay, it makes no sense, and you just don't do that. And she did it anyway. That's submission. That's believing. 
Jesus sees it as the necessary step to revealing the glory of God. If you are going to see the glory of God, Martha, you must believe me and you have to trust me. And just as a side note, I want you to notice the progression. The progression is not from seeing to believing, is it? The progression is from believing to seeing. That's how it works. Well, I think with great trepidation, Martha acquiesces and consents to the tomb being opened. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is grateful that the Father heard his prayer, and because of his constant and perpetual obedience to the Father, the Father always hears the Son. That prayer was for the benefit of those around, that they will have absolutely no doubt as to the fact that the God the Father sent Jesus and that he is the Son of God in the flesh. And what Jesus is about to do has already been discussed with the Father in prayer. And the Father has ordained this action to take place so that all those standing there may believe that Jesus was sent by God to them. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. Now, I want you to stop there for just a moment. It's not that you don't know what's coming, obviously. I mean, you know, you, you, you've read your Bibles before. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. Why cry out in a loud voice? Is, is it for the dead man? No, it's not for Lazarus to hear. The stone has just been rolled away from the entrance to a man's tomb. Nobody does that. Nobody desecrates people's tombs like that. And the fact that Jesus did it to a friend. You don't think that caused a little bit of a buzz in the crowd that's watching? I think the people are probably aghast at how Jesus just desecrated this man's resting place. You just don't do that. The reason behind them feeling this and feeling this way would be very simple to understand. Because they can't do anything to help Lazarus. They believe Jesus can't do anything either. And the reason is actually, is, again, it's very simple. They still believe that Jesus is a mere man, just like they are. That's what they believe. So to be heard above their protestations and their loud wailing, he cries aloud. And he says, Lazarus, come out. 
Now, this is no magic incantation that's muttered over a boiling cauldron, right? This is the life-giving word of God calling out to a corpse. Come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. By the instrumentality and power of Almighty God, the spirit of the dead man reanimates the body it left four days before. And to the amazement of all those gathered there, Lazarus comes out under his own power. And instead of the aroma of death escaping the mouth of that cave, the aroma of life boldly stepped out of that tomb. Isn't that amazing? It was for them too, trust me. (laughs) And then Jesus says to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus commands them to interact personally with Lazarus. By taking the wrappings off of him themselves. And in this way, they can look in his eyes. They can touch his hands. Touch his face. And it's going to settle in their minds once and for all that he is actually alive and he's not just some phantom or ghost. Right? Aren't they going to rip that napkin off his face pretty quick? And what are they going to do? These are two Jewish sisters, remember? They're going to grab a hold of his face and and bring it right up to their eyes. It's you! You're back! (laughs) Right? What is the result of this miracle? Verse 35, therefore many... Who does it say? the Jews. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they put their faith in him. Many of the antagonistic, hostile Jewish leaders put their faith in him. What did they witness with their own eyes? They saw the glory of God. They saw the transcendent power of God. They saw God work in their midst in a way that no man could ever do. And he did it through the man they had just moments before mocked as being impotent. They saw that Jesus, they saw him as the agent of God, the extension of God that brought a dead man back to life. And they said, that's it. He's not just a man. He's God. You have to remember that this is the man that they have been told to hate and despise as a demon-possessed interloper. And they just watched this happen in front of their eyes. Now they have come to believe that he was no ordinary man. 
the God-man, who is the resurrection and the life, caused more than just one man to be resurrected that day. Isn't that cool? But that wasn't the only result. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this. um, Can I stop right there? The guy's dead. How are you going to stop him from going around raising people from the dead? If we let him go on like this, as if he asked you, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. Some of these Jewish religious leaders that were there and watched with their own eyes what happened, they hightail it back to the larger group of the bosses, and they relayed the event, and it resulted in further animosity and a greater and a deeper hardening of heart that led all the way to the chief priest. That's why we say that salvation is a work of God and God alone. Both groups saw the exact same thing. One group said, you are God. And the other group said, we got to kill this guy. So who of all those standing around isn't surprised at what just happened at the tomb? It's Jesus. He's not surprised. He stated back in verse 4 that this sickness was not going to end in death. He stated in verse 11 that he was going there to wake him up. He stated in verse 25 that he himself is life, and he just proved it. Now, I don't know how the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning. But let me encourage you with a few thoughts in relation to this event as it's recorded for us. First, as events in your life unfold, don't assume that God must work in a way that makes sense to you. God rarely acts as you expect him to. Mary and Martha only found disappointment and disillusionment by focusing on the what-ifs and the if-onlys of life. And that's because God is not in the what-if and if-only business. God is in the business of glorifying himself. And God is in the business of conforming you and I to the image of his Son as you interact with him in obedience to his word. It is there that you will experience the wonder and joy of Christ in your life. And second, the purpose for recording this event in the Gospels is not to tell you about Lazarus. That's not what this is for. 
It is to tell you that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for recording this in the gospel. So the question I have for you is, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? The resurrection and the life? Or do you believe that he is like you? Weak and powerless and arriving too late to be of any help? If you believe he's the latter... I would encourage you to take some time this morning to apologize to the creator of the universe that you thought he was a wimp because he didn't do what you thought he should do when you thought he should do it. And if you're here this morning and you're not at peace with him and you realize that and you know you are under the frown of God, you can call out to him, him who is the resurrection and the life. And you can ask him to forgive you of your sins. And you can embrace him as the only savior of your soul. And you can do that today. Well, let's pray. Holy one, you are the great and mighty God. You are glorious. You are powerful. No one can stand in your way. No one can stay your hand. No one can undermine you. Thank you for this recorded event that we see here. And I pray, Father, that we will afford your Son the glory, the honor, and the worship that he is due as our Savior and our God. Thank you for this time. I pray that you will minister in our hearts as only you can do and that you will cause us to see and know and worship the Lord Jesus Christ today. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.